Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome back to Series 7 of Helpful Social Work. I'm Jerry, And I'm Jo. And in this series, we're going back to some of the central elements of social work practice and think about how we use our whole selves to practice social work. So each podcast will look at an element of our physical practice and explore what goes into this area. And the podcasts are loosely based around our human senses. So far, we've talked about listening and speaking and observation. And today, Jerry, we're going to be talking about touch. I think this will be a really interesting one. Mm. Um, now, we're recording this at the end of September, and we have had 2,724 listens in the last 30 days, of, um, which I think is just amazing. And for our last podcast, we've had nearly 1,000 listens. It's fantastic. Thank you, guys. It, it's, yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it's great because yeah. we, we did ramble on quite a lot. <laughs> so it's yeah, great maybe people, people put us on double speed Jerry you never know <laughs> yeah so do please keep sharing the podcast because clearly um it's it's out there and people are picking up on it so that's great yeah fantastic so yeah today touch and we started the other ones with some definitions so again for this one definition for touch to come in contact with so as to feel and I actually really like this definition because it it conveys the idea that you're touching in order to feel um, and also that when you it kind of gives the sense that when you touch you are not only feeling something but also showing that you're feeling something and the other person is is touched too and is also feeling so there's a kind of reciprocal thing like both parties are being touched both parties can be experiencing emotion there's an emotional effect which kind of is conveyed by that phrase I was touched by mm. something um, and also there's a sense of touch uh, around being aware, so being in touch or being out of touch, mm. um, you know, out of touch with an idea or something like that. Yeah. So there's all this kind of ideas of physical touch, emotional touch and awareness. I, I think it's probably fair to say at the start of this podcast that this is not one of my fortes in social work <laughs> practice. I'm not instinctively someone who's um, kind of comfortable with touch. So I've had to kind of figure out how to do this within practice because it's definitely something that's integral. I wouldn't say it's essential because I think it's really important in these podcasts to acknowledge that you know, we'll talk about how it can be for the the person who's experiencing social work, but for social workers as well. You know, people mm. are more or less comfortable or more or less able, have more or less capabilities around these different areas. And that doesn't mean... Um, that you know, this area is so significant that we need to kind of be brilliant at it or even um, you know, there can be reasons why you can't physically touch someone but you might emotionally still absolutely mm. resonate mm. with them so it's a core part of practice um, but also recognizing that it's not always possible and there's just so much nuance to it as well mm. yeah I think I think that's a good point Jerry and just on that um, yeah it, it makes me think about if you if you're working with somebody, particularly someone who's very isolated, if you can't be the person who offers them touch, then how do you find ways to network them? 
so that those opportunities come. That's what I was kind of thinking of because I, I do think that that touch is is beneficial and, and important, but I agree with you, who's offering it matters as well and so thinking about that. But when I started thinking about this topic, my brain immediately went to my early uni days um, where I learned about the Harlow experiment called the Wire Mothers. Now, lots of people who are listening to this will immediately know that experiment. Um, it was a group of rhesus monkeys who were raised from birth by the experimenter, um, and their care was given through two wire figures, kind of like um, human-shaped coat hanger figures. And one had the nutrients they required to live so had a bottle that they could get their nutrients from, but was a bare wire coat hanger. Didn't have any, it was just a coat wire. And the other had a piece of soft fabric wrapped around the wire, but no nutrients. The babies would go to the wire mother when they needed food. And then they would go straight back on to the softer fur mother. And they would spend every available second clinging to that fur mother figure. It was actually a really cruel experiment. It was done in the 50s and it caused a lot of outrage and concern. But what it did for me learning about that was it gave me my first insight into the power of touch. And it made me think about the fact we know our brains are experience expectant. You know, they're wired to receive that information and that input and respond to that. And the brain then develops according to what inputs it's receiving. And this kind of serve and return process is really important. Um, for how we develop as humans and in attachment, and touch is a really big part of that. So if we think about skin-to-skin -skin contact for newborn babies who are premature or suffering from drug withdrawals, that's been really identified as an important part of the healing process. And there's actual, um, you know, volunteer schemes set up for people who come in to hold these babies um, for a number of hours each day. We've really seen the lack of the impact of touch on children who were found in the Romanian orphanages. You know, alongside the lack of stimulation, the lack of interaction and movement, they didn't experience touch. So we are hardwired for touch. It's the first sense acquired, the last loss, and our skin is our largest sensory organ. And we take in huge amounts of information about the texture of things, the strength of things, the temperature of things, the emotional tone of things. You know, like we're taking all of that in through touch. So it's a huge um, information system. Yeah, we did actually mention it in our last podcast about observation, didn't we? That um, you think about observation in its broadest sense, that includes touching, you yeah. know, that you're, you're acquiring information um, about the world around you. Um, so we were looking at the interactions of social workers with children and the need to be quite physical in those interactions mm, mm. Um, in order to really get a sense of be able to really see um, and observe what's happening. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's so it's it's quite it's quite a, um, a fundamental human requirement. Um, and once again, for me, if I was thinking about practice, it's not always having to meet every requirement yourself, but being curious about where they're getting that from. Yeah. Where are people getting touch from? And we what did, does yeah. that touch feel like? We did have an opportunity to experience how important touch is and oh. really get a sense of what it felt like 
to to lose some of that during COVID. Mm. And I found a really interesting article from the Royal Society, which is about social touch deprivation during COVID and the effects on psychological well-being and, and the craving of interpersonal touch. So that's by Von Moore, Kirsch and Fotopoulou, and it came out in September 21, so a year and a half after the start of the pandemic in this country. And they surveyed um, 1,746 people from different countries. Uh, it's an online survey, and it was asking about intimate, friendly and professional touch experiences. And then looking at um, scales of mental health and well-being um, to see you know, to see how, how that was impacted. And yeah, it was a self-selecting sample, but it's a big one. And what they found was that intimate touch deprivation during COVID-19 uh, was associated with higher anxiety and greater loneliness. Mm. Although for most people, intimate touch was still the kind of touch that people were having. It was the friendly and professional touch that kind of disappeared most mm. um also the intimate touch was the type of touch that people most craved um and so people really noticed that um and they also did observe that there were like really different um the differences between people in um terms of what, of what they were looking for mm. um, and that related to attachment style the more anxiously attached the more touch was craved avoidantly attached less desire for touch so I was just really interested in how um, interpersonal and particularly intimate touch um, impacted on people in times of distress and uncertainty, both in terms of what they needed and also the impact whether they received it or not. So I was I was really interested. Um, I mean, that made me think about lots of things around firstly how important touch is, but also the different kinds of touch. You know, professional, mm. which would be so you say a shopkeeper touching your hand as they gave you the change mm. back when we used to use money, um, or <laughs> you know um, that kind of friendly hugs and things from friends which really more or less disappeared in that yeah and then that intimate touch uh, which for some people also really disappeared and the links between those those and anxiety and loneliness and also this real diversity about people's um wants and needs and how far they're met yeah i think that's really interesting and, it, and once again you know this 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 whole conversation just shoots me back into different kind of memories and places covid was very hard i was very lucky because i lived with my husband and my son um we're a very tight unit so you know um that kind of intimate touch was fine but um a dear friend of mine who was in her 80s her late 80s during covid um and who's um you know, very precious to to myself and, and, and my kind of family circle. Not touching her was horrible. It was really horrible. And we would meet sometimes when we were allowed to, you know, in the outdoor spaces and those kind of things, and we would all be really careful. We'd be walking a distance. Lucky we lived somewhere where we could. But I remember this day when it had just been going on and on and on, and her son was, you know, walking a distance from her. And he came up to me and he said, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to hug mum. Yeah. And I said to him, go for it. Because she just, she really needed it. You could see she did. And so did he. And it was just like, you know, something, it's just got to happen. This has got to happen. And so he gave her the hug for, and everyone was like, oh, my God. oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting <laughs> aspect, isn't it? That quite often we can tell that somebody needs touch. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's part of our kind of, um, experiential and intuitive practice. 
yeah, I think that's exactly right. You can pick those things up. Um, so for me, you know, I was thought also about um, how touch is important to children, especially young children who are seeking it out all the time. Babies are held to be comforted, contained, interacted with. Toddlers constantly play with your hair, your face, pats, stroke people, completely uninhibited. Their circle's usually fairly small at that time, and so they're surrounded by people who welcome their touch. But then as they go into nursery or school, they start to be taught about the difference between touching with permission, invading someone's personal space with touch. And I think this is a really critical time for humans to be able to hone their ability to use touch well. You know, when do we hug, shake hands, pat shoulders, put on knees, sit beside all those things are being worked out by a young child. And then that informs how we respond and how comfortable we are with touch as, as we grow up and go into the world. And I was also thinking about um, uh, neurodiv neurodiverse people and how sometimes those rules of touch or not touch may not work for people, yeah. May not work as well and how hard that is when they come into those group settings um, and so yeah. for the practitioner who comes into the life of the child or the young person, working out how to keep the boundaries that offer safety and dignity and also make the touch affirming and kind, I, I think is really tricky. And I kind of thought about when I worked with people with disabilities or frailties and how we develop that professional touch, which is kind and reassuring and, and yet still human because we don't want the touch to feel mechanical um, or invasive as if the person is receiving touch without or touching us without permission. It's, it's just not easy to get it right. And I kind of thought kindness and communication is the key here. You've got to constantly, I'm going to do this now. Does that feel okay? Check in about temperature, texture, pressure of touch fairly constantly. And, um, this took me back and then I'll, and then I'll be quiet because this kind of this stuff took me back a lot to, to a lot of things. But it took me back to my mother when she was dying of cancer. She was very frail and she loved being watched, washed in warm water. You know, um, so the nurse and I would bath her and honestly, just being touched kindly, having her head massaged, just having the warm water run over her body. You know, her smile just would light up the room. And you could see her just relax. And I thought, so the touch of water, warm water on a person can also be. So there's other ways we can touch people. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in um, you know, when you're with someone who's living with dementia, for example, um, you know, touch is a really crucial part of that. And, and not just, you, know, you said before, you know, the skin's really sensitive to different things. So there's there's textures, there's fragrances, um, you know, things that that bring back warmth and cools mm. things that bring back particular memories or evoke particular sensations and um yeah there's some really some really powerful emotional responses that come through um and then there's also the way that so touch is it's kind of a gateway to emotion isn't it um mm. it's also a way of of containing and, and holding emotion um mm. Yeah, and I was thinking about that kind of containing touch and, you know, um, because the other thing was that, you know, working in residential and working in disability settings, sometimes people would become overwrought 
and almost be outside themselves. Like their emotions became so strong that they'd almost lost a sense of being in their own body. And so a kind touch can bring somebody back, but it really needs to be on a neutral part of the body, you know, on the shoulder or the arm done alongside the person not confronting and for me it's about how in that in those kind of times you step back to give them space so space in touch is really important for me the length of time you touch for and the space you give people to respond um and yeah. i think you know that that matters as well and it's something that you need to be thoughtful about in terms of the, the touches and interruption as well isn't it so in the same way yeah. as if somebody's telling you something and you jump in too soon you lose the power of what they're telling you they, they lose that flow mm. if somebody's um in an emotional flow mm. and you stop them with a touch too soon it might be really unhelpful for them they might really need so you know i've certainly sat with people who who are emotionally extremely distressed and, and being kind of trying to work out when's the right moment what do they need do they need a hug do they need a touch do they need just me to, to give them space yeah, what, mm. what exactly what's the best thing um and, and that's it, a yeah. really that's an excellent um thing to think about um you know that kind of space because for me we often use hugging or touching when we can't stand the emotion anymore so one of the skills in social work, one of the things that we're asked to do is we're asked to witness people's pain quite a lot. And we're asked to sit alongside people who are in pain and be a witness to that without interrupting it, as you say. Um, and sometimes when we become distressed, we can use touch to interrupt it for our own protection. Yeah, and I certainly found that the way that you touch someone, say, on the hand can either mean okay but we're we're ready to do you we need to mm. think about moving from here or yep. it can mean i'm just here with you yeah. let's take as long as we need and it it's really it's really interesting it's the same hand <laughs> yeah yep yeah. That's, but it, but it, and i think that's right and, and we are and we understand the different touches you know we understand the shut up hug or the just lean on me hug or the, you know, I'm so glad to see you hug. We, we get all of that stuff. Um, and that's that's the trick then, isn't it? And so, therefore, we also pick up if someone's uncomfortable using touch or if someone has bad intent in touch, because that's the other thing we haven't talked about, um, which is, you know, we, we do need to, you know, we do need to think about intent with touch. Yeah, and I found this amazing article um, in the British Journal of Social Work from 2017, by Lorraine Green, uh, called The Trouble with Touch, question mark, New Insights and Observations on Touch for Social Work and Social Care. And Lorraine Green honestly has done so much for for this podcast because she's really brought together lots and lots of the thinking. Um, and the start, you know, there's just so many ideas in this article that really are really helpful. What The first one actually was around the idea of there being three kind of categories of touch, good touch, bad touch and absent touch. Mm. which I found really, really interesting. Um, but also that acknowledgement that there's, it's a, it's really complex, and we say this all the time in things in social work, don't we? Um, it's a potentially very ambiguous form of communication. Mm. Um, and so what you were saying about kindness and communication, you know, touch is part of a whole suite of communication, isn't it? And, and the, the, 
the being really purposeful and kind about it obviously can help with um, with interpretation mm. um and you know, this article goes on to talk about some of the things that you've mentioned around how therapeutic touch can be and then mm. also really acknowledges the variation in how people might experience touch or what they might be looking for um that rise from culture um from relationship the context age social class gender and sexuality so all these different nuances of how people might interpret what you're doing um and there was one thing in here that i just wanted to highlight for a moment which is higher status individuals such as managers tend to touch their lower status subordinates more according to some research by Hefe 2007 which implies that power dynamics are embedded in touch practices mm. And that that is really fascinating, actually, because, of course, power dynamics is is so essential for us to recall all the time in social work. Um, that made me think about the kind of touch that I used or didn't use, because I would say that I would tend to err more on the absent touch problem. Mm. Um, not just in my social work practice, but also when I was a manager um, or when I've been in professional relationship with colleagues um, and how that might be interpreted and how much I've, I feel like I've always had kind of a say in how much touch there was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's an interesting it's, power issue in itself, isn't it? Yeah, and it was interesting. Just you, you raising that reminded me. I went and saw this fantastic piece of theatre on Friday night called "Don't Touch My Hair," um, and it was a young girl, a young woman, a young black woman talking about her experience of growing up in a white community and um, having a very tightly curled Afro hair um, and having a white mum and a black dad and a white mum who didn't know how to manage her hair, not being able to find headdresses anywhere or products and so kind of having this, this hair really leading her, her identity um, and how people would touch it without asking her or wouldn't touch it or would ask to touch it um, and and how she you know she kind of felt about that touch and she felt about about that and it was a very it was very powerful it was a really good piece of theatre um, and it made me reflect I mean people sometimes will say they like my hair like the colour or anything but people don't try and touch it like yeah. you understand that don't you but there's there's something about feeling you've got permission to do that without asking that's about power isn't it so it's once again you know when you touch somebody and maybe and and, and that might have something to do with why we touch babies so much I don't know I, I'm not saying it's all you know sinister and terrible but I'm just wondering you know we, we, if is permission to do we touch people more when we're either you know have complete permission because we're very close or when we maybe don't have the permissions because we don't feel we need them so, yeah, I mean, I think if you, you were saying you know people are hardwired hard -wired to touch, that's not going to change mm. because you've become an adult. No, but it has all these then socialised layers yeah, over exactly. it. Um, and one of the things that the article by Lorraine Green talks about is you know, our understandings of touch, um, social workers, and how they're as professional and personal and kind of identity layers to that as well. Mm. Um, organizational social layers and actually quite often we hear on the side of worry about misinterpretation um, but yeah. you know depending on your own identity who you might feel comfortable approaching and how you might do that 
really varies. So this is a literature review that draws on you know, lots of literature, for example, from, say, nursing, thinking about mm. um, you know, the sex of a nurse or their sexuality and how they then approach patients' age, things like that, mm. that affect mm. um, you know, how, how people might interpret or how comfortable they might be. And, of course, we're, we're thinking about how you know, we're, we're being other-minded, thinking about how the other person might interpret things, and then that's affecting how we're interpreting them. And we, you know, and 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 I think um, I, w- I was getting the sense from reading this and thinking about it that we can we can overthink it mm. and and be inhibited in ways that actually is unhelpful then to the person who might just need a touch. Um, but we do have to think about it because you know, yeah. there's all of those factors. There's also people's previous experiences and history and their um, their preferences, you know, which might arise, you say, from um, their um, the way that they um, think about touch or how comfortable they are instinctively with touch. Mm. So much to to think about. It is really, and it, went, it was interesting when I worked in the disabilities field. There was this uh, in the eighties. There was this new um, thing around the human relations practitioner. And what that meant was I was a person who offered sex education and discussions about safe sex to adults with disabilities and often their family members. Well, this often involved talking about masturbation, which could sometimes be done excessively and in the wrong places like public venues and things like that. So it was really hard work to get that kind of help right. So part of our training involved sitting across from another person we did not know face-to-face with our knees touching, making direct eye contact and answering questions. So was that to experience that as... It was, what my understanding was it was to experience the extreme discomfort that could be caused by by the wrong touch or by the wrong, the wrong, you know, by the wrong kind of um, dealing with intimacy in these, in these areas. The experience made me almost physically ill. I actually had to stop participating. The male I was sitting opposite, he was large and he was imposing, he had a really piercing eyes and he was kind and respectful. It, it wasn't that, but I could not feel safe sitting in that formation with him and I've always remembered the confrontational feel of that touch and it's really informed my practice because I always try when I'm talking to people about difficult and distressing things to sit kind of off center from them during those conversations and I also am really aware of how much space I give them and how they can move away if they need to so I don't put them in corners or things like that where they they feel they can't you know they they can't get anywhere um and if I reach out and touch them I'm 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 really thinking about that um and that was informed that's always informed my practice from this you know this really strong moment um and having said that I've got to say I'm a hugger I absolutely love my people I'm always touching my closest family and friends know they'll get a big hug from me when they see me. Um, And people I work with will get warm touches from me if they invite them. But I am a bit, I I do tend to not step into into that without being asked first because I know I'm a big hugger, if that makes sense. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's tricky. That's one of the things, again, that um, Lorraine Green's article highlights and mentions is that, 
social work part of the the issue is that it's it's um it's a public service but it's in the private sphere mm. so there's this overlap um and this boundary issue you know mm. so mm. um yeah so you're you're kind of you've got all these social norms and rules around how you interact with someone in a public sphere and then you're actually in their private sphere yeah or in even if you're in a public sphere you might be in their very private moments mm. so there's an actual intimacy which lends itself to think well actually there needs to be a an intimate response yeah but it's still a public service yeah. so yeah and i think that over overlap is really difficult and you see that in um places like care homes where um that's someone's home mm. and and the staff who work there are you know part of the the family in that sense they're living in that same and yeah. working in that same place um but the but it's a service and it's really hard i think to to manage that um and so what we can quite often do is fall into that idea of well you know absent touch is best because then there's no yeah. ambiguity and we get worried about you know how things might be interpreted um and then you miss out on the supportive touch yeah yeah i think on the whole I'd rather have to apologise for a supportive touch than offer absent touch in those in those situations, particularly in residential or in disability or in care homes or in places where, like I said, for me, the question is this, where do people get their touch from? Where do people get their safe, warm human touch from? And if they're not getting it from anyone, what can we do about that? Um, and how can we help them connect in a way that offers them that? And you talked about um, the rubbing in of, you know, like, sorry, the, you know, the kind of the different senses you could use to touch people. And one of the things that we used to do um, with people with disabilities, particularly if they had um, cerebral palsy or things like that, is we would just rub um, hand cream on their hands and give their hands a really nice massage um just to kind of you know straighten out the muscles but also to give them that that touch that safe touch um so i think you know thinking about this stuff as you say you can overthink about you can overthink it um yeah there's one other thing that i wanted to mention which yeah. struck me when i was reading up on um for this podcast which is about the difficulty of offering um needed touch when you may not like the person yeah that's um, really and that's yeah. and that's the same for all of our all of our work um mm. or you may not feel an affinity with them or you might mm. um, you mm. might find it really hard and i think you know, there's 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 all the work that we you know, we need to do to um to understand our own identity and experiences and responses and other people's as well um and then all the kind of work that we need to do to really be able to find and see and experience humanity mm. in whatever situation um you know and and then that would mean that we could respond in the human humane way that's 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 needed which may well involve touch um mm. but there will and be it, an element of support needed for that won't there if it's yeah. actually it can sometimes be really really hard and i think the other touch we haven't talked about um which which is with much which is bad touch um which can be that kind of reluctant touching that lets somebody know that that 
you're doing this distastefully. That's how they feel about it. But it can also be, you know, um, invasive touching. But there's also can that kind of um, therapeutic crisis intervention touching where somebody is completely out of control and damaging things and threatening to hurt someone and you do restraining. And that does happen. Social workers do do that. But in residential home, in residential settings, social workers in youth justice settings, you know, those restraint that those restraining touches do happen and people are trained on them. Um, and I think that, you know, I've certainly been trained on it. I've never had to do that with anybody, um, even though I've done a lot of training on it because of, of working in resi and um, in the disability field. But I think that must be very hard professionally for the person who is doing the restraining and, of course, very distressing for the person who's being restrained. And that goes back to the idea, doesn't it, about people's previous experiences of touch, particularly if they've had bad experiences. Mm. Um, what you're doing isn't isn't neutral. It's not coming from a kind of blank sheet, is it? It's no. going to resonate, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. It's going to resonate with with that um, with that previous experience. So again, yeah. there's so much to be aware of. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the thing that kind of this brings it makes me kind of latch back onto is the idea of the kind of humanity of touch and the only way that you'll really get a sense of what what's what's the humane um the kind of the best humane response is to be really thoughtful about yourself and the other person in that particular mm. situation and just be really kind of reflexively thinking about it all the time um, and be as open and transparent as possible um about what you're, th what you're thinking is needed and, and why that might be and what might be helpful and really, really open to the, to the feedback that you're getting. Mm. Um, and in the moment, that can be really difficult, can't it? Um, yeah. Um, and if you misstep, apologise and talk about it. That's the other thing. You know, if you touch somebody who then kind of steps away from you and you think, oh, I got that wrong, or if you stop someone's emotional flow, um, or if you need to use therapeutic crisis intervention and that distresses somebody, then there's the conversations, the repairing conversations afterwards, isn't there? And once again, for me, this a lot of this comes back to good supervision too and really being able to talk with your peers and reflect with your peers about this part of the work. Because when you're in the flow of an interaction, you're doing things almost instinctively. You know, you're reading the other human and you're responding to them in that kind of dance of relationship um and, and things it, are and resonating you with you as wrong. well yeah because yeah. yeah. social workers will have their own you know we'll all have our own experiences of good bad and absent touch and and mm. what the response of the person that we're with means to us as well mm. um, which might you know resonate with all kinds of feelings from you know, a real a real sense of connection to a potentially a sense of rejection or Dismay. Or lack of safety. Yeah. I mean, you know, like being creeped out by someone's touch. We haven't talked about that. But, um, you know, some of the people that we work with might actually make us feel unsafe, you know, as well again, as we make them element, feel unsafe. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, the, I, I think this is a huge area. And I love the fact that you found that really great article. I enjoyed um, looking at it and I think that yeah looking at Lorraine Green's work guys just the trouble with touch and um, having a read of it is is a is a great idea um, and reflexivity here is is I mean that word you know I've, 
we've talked about it quite a lot and you know think about it quite a lot in the in the work that I do you know, what's the difference between being reflective and being reflexive um, mm. and the idea of reflexive as kind of deeper reflection around your the space you take up mm. and the impact that has I think in this 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 podcast has really helped me think about that because you know you're touching the world the whole time you're touching the person situation and context the whole time mm. just by breathing you know, just by being in the same space just by being there um but if you add to that an actual potential physical connection and the emotional aspects of that um and all the the history and an impact that that has a meaning that that has then there's a real need for that reflexivity about you know, what what effect are we having on this mm. and what and what effect is this having on us as well uh, you can't sort of drift through social work as a kind of um, embodied brain thinking about stuff can you <laughs> you're no. really in the thick of it yeah it's such a fascinating profession from that point of view Jerry because it, it doesn't let you off the hook ever really does it it just you know like I mean it re- it's so rewarding but the but you really do have to find ways to keep moving past the procedure and the process and the workload and the flow and the demand to move into that human to human connection and how you're using yourself to help somebody else make sense of their experiences in the world around them and just one last kind of reflection on that I have talked here a bit about the fact that I'm experiencing um, different services for um, my son and um, we've had quite a lot of bad help to tell you the honest truth but one of the best helps he's had was done virtually and immediately that the person on the other end touched him. I could see it. I could see her warmth and feel her warmth and her energy and her concern and the way she held her head and asked him things. The connection was almost immediate between them. And I thought, isn't that interesting? You know, the virtual touch was there, actually. Um, And we never have to remind him to go and talk to that person, ever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we need to to come back to that idea of of how all of these things work virtually as well um, at some point, because we haven't really talked about that enough in the series yet. No, we haven't yet. We have to convey it, don't we? We have to use this because um, sometimes this is the only medium that we're that we're having contact in so yeah i mean lots to think about um anyone who's got any ideas or suggestions or comments yeah jump in there and get in touch and let us know what you're thinking well it's been lovely talking to you jerry as usual thanks joe okay see you later